Wednesday night, and it is September 7th, and we've been going through the book of James. Last week we, we talked about Rahab, and that she was mentioned at the end of chapter 2, so I thought it would be a good idea to go through that story, so we did that last week, and um, we're, gonna, we're in chapter 3 now, and chapter 3 is talking about how important it is to control the tongue. Control the tongue. It's such a small member of the body, but yet it can get you in big, big trouble. It could be by not saying anything. You could have said, uh, I love you. You could have said, happy anniversary. You could have said, happy birthday. But you didn't, by what you didn't say, can get you in trouble. But most of the time, it's what we do say that gets us in trouble. So uh, let's read from James chapter 3. Now, in, the, uh, in, in chapter 1, toward the end of chapter 1, there's, a, there's mention of the tongue, and I kind of went on by that because I knew we were going to get to 3 one day. Uh, Y'all might not have any confidence that I'm ever going to get to chapter 3, but I knew we would one day. So we're, we're here. So since this chapter is so involved in that, I, I just kind of went on. But there's also mention of the tongue in chapter 2, and there's mention of it, of course, a whole lot in 3, and there's mention in 4 and 5. So it's throughout the book of James. So it's an important subject. So let's start reading. My brethren... Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, if you have, I, I think even the New King James will, will change masters to teachers, because we don't use that word uh, masters like uh, they would have used back, back in uh, Bible times. And, but that's teacher. It's somebody who... Um, you would go to to learn from, and, the, and we're, we're told right here, be not many masters or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now that word condemnation uh, freaks some people out. They automatically think that if there's any condemnation that comes on you, that means you, you're going to hell. You're just, you're done for. Well, that's not, that's not correct. Uh, there's, a, there's a verse in Romans that all the new versions mess up because they can't handle that condemnation statement. And I think it's the very beginning of chapter 8. It says something about there is no condemnation to those who walk after the Spirit. Uh, and people will say, well, well it's saying that if, you're, if you don't walk after the Spirit, then you're doomed. They, they take it too far, but anyway... The new version, see, we've been on this topic. This past Sunday turned out to be, I thought it was going to be just a little section of the sermon was going to be about the new versions and, and how things were messed up and why I defend the King James Bible, but it ended up taking almost the whole, the whole time. But that's just another example of a place where it's, where it's changed. So what does this verse mean? Be, we just are being, 
we're being warned or cautioned that to teach the Word of God is a very serious thing. And we just need to be very careful because you're going to be held accountable when you are a teacher of the Word. You will be held accountable. That's all it's really saying in verse 1. Verse 2, For in many things we offend all, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. So you would be, you're doing really, really well if you are able to keep the tongue in check to where you don't mess up with it. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. So that one little tiny tool, that, that, piece that, that piece of metal that goes in the horse's mouth, and it's connected with the, the reins, the straps that go around, that holds it in place, but you make that horse do what you want it to do just by pulling, and that bit is, is moving in its mouth, you can control that big, huge horse. You're, we're going to see several different uh, examples, pictures, word pictures here of little things that control very big things. Verse 4 is the next. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm or a rudder, Whither, whithersoever the governor listeth. So the captain of the ship, he's up there, and he's turning that wheel, and it's that little tiny rudder in a huge ship that makes that ship go where he wants it to go. So it's another picture of the very little tongue that we have, and it will direct the body. It, it will... When you teach speaking something, it's going to make people uh, go one way or the other. When you teach little children all their subjects in school, that's, that you're, you're, you're uh, directing their ways and their future and everything. It's so important what we teach people. And we, we definitely need to be teaching the young, the little kids at uh, very, very young ages. All right, well, I'm going to read a little bit out of... Uh, the uh, Believer's Bible Commentary. It's got some pretty good things in here about this uh, matter of the tongue. So it's talking about these figures of speech, five figures of speech, so we've, already, we've only covered two, two of them. Or pictures of tongue are given. First of all, it is compared to a bridle. Bridles are, the, I already talked about the, the, all of that. So it's connected to the reins. So the tongue can direct the life either for good or for evil. The second picture is that of a rudder compared with the ship itself. A rudder is very small. It weighs only a fraction. He's got an example of the Queen Elizabeth. That ship weighed 83,673 tons. And the rudder was only two-tenths of one percent of the total weight of the ship. 
Yet, when the rudder is turned, it controls the direction of the ship itself. It seems incredible that a man can control so huge a vessel with such a relatively small device, yet this is exactly what happens. Thus, we should, we should not misjudge the power of the tongue by its size. Though it is a very small member of the body and relatively hidden, yet it can boast of great accomplishments, both good and evil. All right, verse 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. A little fire. So imagine uh, just a little spark and what it can do. All it, that's where a big, huge forest fire can start from, just a little spark. So the tongue is being compared to a spark that could start a massive fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of, this is verse 6, a world of iniquity, so is the tongue among our members, it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. So you've got, uh, it's basically saying that pretty much any animal can be tamed to a, to a point. To where you can control it, do what you want, make it do things. But yet, of all the things that have been tamed on earth and sea creatures, you ever been to uh, uh, a water show where the dolphins are doing their thing? I mean, it's, it's amazing what you can train dolphins to do. They're very, very smart creatures. And I went to one down in uh, Panama City, Florida. It was a small... Uh, kind of like a SeaWorld type of place, but it was a small version of it. And we watched those dolphins in the water do all these different things. This girl was on the side, and she was doing hand signals, and they were just doing amazing things. And it, it, it just watching it, it, it was just amazing. I, I, just, I still remember, that's been a long, long time, probably 20 years ago. So, all right, let's... All right, we'll, we're going to talk about, he's talking about the Chicago Fire of 1871. You know, legend has it that it was uh, Mrs. O'Leary's cow that kicked over the lantern. Now, we don't know if that's true. They don't know if that's true, but that's just the story behind it. So this little lantern, if that's what happened, got kicked over by a cow, and the fire burned for three days burned up three and a half square miles of the city. 250 people were killed and 100,000 homeless and destroyed property valued at $175 million, which, you know, back in 1871, that's a a lot. So the tongue is talked about as being like that. So that little tiny fire that was meant for good in a lantern, when it's misused could cause serious damage. And he even says there that it's, it's 
the fire of hell. So in, at the end of 6, it says, and it is set on fire of hell, which basically what that's saying is, that's where evil speaking comes from. Satan is behind it. That's, what it's, that's basically what the Bible's telling us. That if, when, we do, when we use our tongue for bad things, we're being inspired to do so by, the, by our enemy. Now that next, the verse that talked about all the animals that uh, have been tamed mankind in seven, and then it says the tongue can no man tame. You ever heard of uh, Robert G. Lee? He was a pastor. If you ever, if you listen to Adrian Rogers much, you'll hear him talk about him. He was a former pastor, I think. It might have been of the church that Adrian Rogers was a church was a uh, pastor at. I think it was Bellevue in uh, Memphis, and um, he he talks about Robert G. Lee many times. And this is what Robert G. Lee said many years ago. All right, listen listen carefully to this. Robert G. Lee, what has man done with huge elephants? He has invaded their jungle homes, trapped them, trained them, scores of them in carrying lumber and pushing heavily laden wagons and all kinds of labor. What has man done with many green-eyed Bengal tigers? He has caught them, taught them, and made them his playmates. What has man done with fierce, ferocious or furious, strong African lions. He has captured numbers of them and has trained them to jump through hoops of fire, to ride horseback, to sit on high pedestals, to leave untouched, when hungry, beef placed between their paws. So just imagine this big lion, hungry lion, and you put a big old slab of meat right there between his paws and you've trained him not to eat it yet. <clears throat> to lie down, to stand up, to run, to roar in obedience to man's spoken word, in obedience to the crack of man's whip. Why, why once I saw, years ago, at a circus, a lion open wide his... Carn, I just got really loud there. Uh, carnivorous and ravenous mouth and hold it open while a man, his trainer, thrust his head far down into the lion's mouth, and held it there a full minute. What has man done with the huge boa constrictor, with the great python? Go to the circus and see little women, frail as flowers, coil these hideous monsters about their bodies with impunity. Go to the animal show, consider how Man has made the spotted leopard and the bloodthirsty jaguar harmless and dumb before him. Go to the show and see the trained, uh, see the hungry jackal lie down with the meek lamb, see the dove and the eagle nest together, see the wolf and the rabbit romp and play. So he's just basically saying that man has, just to, just to go along with this verse, has done amazing things with very dangerous animals. 
and have been able to tame them. But the Bible says man can't, cannot tame the tongue of man. Can't do it. <clears throat> Verse 9, and remember, it's full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, so with the very tongue <laughs> that we're being warned about, we, can, we bless God with it, even the Father, and there, therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doeth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs, so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. So he's trying to get you to understand that the, the human being can speak really great things, can even you know, pray to God in heaven, can encourage people, but yet turn and go another direction and use that very same tongue to curse someone, to speak bad about someone. And if, if you are part of the family of God, that just shouldn't be. It's what he's trying to get us to understand. And we have to really ask ourselves, you know, if we, if we could speak out in anger, then we need, we got some issues we need to deal with. If we're able to just lie, just go around and just speak lies, and, and it doesn't seem to convict us, something's wrong. And we need to check on that. <clears throat> if a man, this is uh, referring to verse 13. If a man is wise and understanding, he will demonstrate it by his good conduct coupled with the humble spirit that comes from wisdom. The Lord Jesus, the embodiment of true wisdom, was not proud and arrogant. He was meek and lowly in heart. You can get that out of Matthew eleven twenty twenty nine. Therefore, all who are truly wise will have the hallmark of genuine humility. So, in ver that's referring to verse 13, uh, with meekness of wisdom is how it ended. 14, but if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. The worldly wise man is characterized by bitter envy and selfish ambition in his heart. His one passion in life is to advance his own interest. He is jealous of any competitors and ruthless in dealing with them. He is proud of his wisdom that has brought success. But James says that this isn't wisdom at all. Such boasting is empty. It is a practical denial of the truth that the man who is truly wise is truly humble. That's the truth. Now, you can see 
Um, I mean, we're coming up to an election in November, big election in November. So you can see all kinds of people talking bad about other people. I don't remember it being like that when I was young. You didn't, you didn't hear a whole lot of one person trying to... See, nowadays, they have people who go out and investigate. As soon as someone is named, they, they win a primary, and now they're going to be the person that's going to represent one party or another. There is a team that goes out and tries to find anything negative they can. I just read, uh, told y'all not long ago, I read uh, Christy Nome's book, uh, Not My First Rodeo. And Christy Nome, when she was asked, when she got the nomination, I can't remember which race it was for, but I, evidently it was for a big one, like for the house, you know, in, where she was going to go to Washington, D.C. And they, her, her team said, is there anything at all you need to tell us about? Anything in your past that we need to be aware of? And she's like, oh, absolutely nothing except for maybe one traffic ticket. Well, she had multiple traffic tickets. Uh, like 95 miles an hour or whatever. I mean, she had some really bad ones, and she had quite a few of them, and some of them where she was, she was really late paying and all that stuff. So they... They could find nothing else on her, no dirt on her at all. But that, they just put everywhere. And she, she was at a, I think it was a rodeo event for her daughter and a bunch of her friends, daughter's friends, and they all rode horses in the rodeo. And she was told when she was there that don't watch the news tonight. Don't watch it because they're going to have a hit on you, a hit piece on you. But she couldn't stand not knowing what they were going to say. She, she turned it on. And they made, they made her, and all the, her daughter and all these girls were sitting in the hotel room watching this news station, and they made her sound like the most evil person in the world. Her daughter's sitting there with tears coming down her face, and she's going, you know, she can't believe what they've done with this information. And, and turned it every way they could to make her look horrible. So people use their tongue with, because of the bitter envying and strife. People are bitter. Whether it's, uh, it could be something as innocent as a football team and a certain player who is, has come in and other players are jealous of him and start spreading rumors that he's no good, he fumbles all the time, you know, whatever. And then the kid gets in the game and just does really, really good. Then you find out they were just jealous of him. They wanted to push him down, get him out of the way because he was a threat. We see it all the time, all the time. Jealousy. Fifteen. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly. Talking about this wisdom that you know, people who, they become successful. They might win an election. 
by all the bad things they did, all the evil speaking they did, and they think, I was so smart by using all of that against my opponent, and they, they might be proud of what they've done, but this wisdom descendeth, verse 15, descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. <clears throat> so, even in Christian service, it is possible to be bitterly jealous of other workers and to seek a prominent place for oneself. There is always a danger that worldly wise men will be given places of leadership in the church. We must constantly guard against allowing worldly principles to guide us in spiritual affairs. James calls this false wisdom earthly, sensual, and demonic. In the King James it says devilish. There is an intended downward progression in these three objectives. Earthly means that this wisdom is not from heaven, but from this earth. Sensual means that it is not the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but of man's lower nature. Demonic or devilish means that it stoops to actions that resemble the behavior of demons rather than of men. Verse 16, For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Whenever you find envy and self-seeking, you will also find confusion, disharmony, and every other kind of evil. Think of the unrest and agitation in the world today, all because men reject true wisdom. True wisdom. Where do you get true wisdom? You get it out of the Word of God, and you get it out of Proverbs. You can even get it out of Ecclesiastes. But we get wisdom. You know, I went through uh, Proverbs two months in a row, and read, every day read the chapter that matched with the date. I did that for two months in a row, and I really like doing that. So Proverbs, oh, and I found another verse. You know, remember, not that long ago, I read all those verses about the rod of correction, and I was on day 20-something, but when I got to 30, there was another one that I could have added. So there's nine. Not all of them have rod of correction in it, but they're very similar. So I have another one that I added to my list. So if, I would have, if it would have been the following Sunday, I would have gotten through those uh, chapters and I would have had another one on my list. And I didn't write it down the first time I went through, but the second time I, I, I made a point to write down each verse that I came across that dealt with that. And I've got a lot of good feedback on that little comment I made about uh, discipline. And I, I won't even, I'm not going to say it right now, but... I made a little reference to basically you would, you'll get in trouble for punishing a child with a rod of correction, but look at what you can do to a little baby that's still in the mother's womb. We're, we're messed up bad in this world. In this country, we are really messed up. And so we let little kids get away with anything and no discipline, and if you do discipline, you'll probably get in trouble for it. But yet, look what we can do to an unborn child.
Yeah, all right, so I, I asked, where, where do you get true wisdom? So we went into Proverbs and uh, the Bible, and knowing that Jesus is an, the best example ever for wisdom. You, you read your Bible, and you read all those places where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the lawyers, they all tried to catch him in something that they could get him on, and he always handled it with perfect wisdom. So we can get a lot of uh, examples from our Lord himself, how he handled things in what, you know, the Word of God where we read about him. All right, 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. That's a lot. That's a whole lot right there in that one verse. The wisdom that comes from God is first pure. In thought, word, and deed, it is clean. In spirit and body, in doctrine and practice, in faith and in moral, in morals, it is undefiled. It is also peaceable. This simply means that a wise man loves peace and will do all he can to maintain peace without sacrificing purity. This is illustrated by Luther's story of the two goats that met on a narrow bridge over deep water. They could not go back and they did not dare to fight. After a short parley, one of them lay down and let the other go over him and thus no harm was done. The moral, Luther would say, is easy. Be content if your person is trod upon for peace's sake. Your person, I say, not your conscience. True wisdom is gentle. It is forbearing, not overbearing, courteous, not crude. A wise man is a gentleman. So I'm, I'm reading out of the Believer's Bible Commentary. A wise man is a gentleman, respectful of the feelings of others, so the, uh, the, willing, the willing to yield, so the willing to yield would be you're approachable, open to reason, ready to give in when truth requires it. It is the opposite of obstinate and adamant. Wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. It is full of mercy. To those who are in the wrong and anxious to help, help them find the right way, it is compassionate and kind. There is no vindictiveness in it. Indeed, it rewards discourtesy with benevolence. It is without partiality. That is, it does not produce favoritism. It is impartial in its treatment of others. Finally, true wisdom is without hypocrisy, it is sincere and genuine. It does not pretend to be other than it actually is. Now let us pull all these thoughts together to form the portraits of two men, the truly wise man and the man with false wisdom. The man who is truly wise is genuinely humble. He estimates others to be better than himself. He does not put on airs, but does put others at ease right away. 
His behavior is not like that of the world around him. It is otherworldly. He does not live for the body, but for the spirit. In words and deeds, he makes you think of the Lord Jesus. His life is pure. Morally and spiritually, he is clean. Then, too, he is peaceable. He will endure insult and false accusation, but will not fight back or even seek to justify himself. He is gentle, mild-mannered, and tender-hearted. That's why a lot of people don't like certain candidates, even though, you know, certain political figures, you know, all of this we're, we're seeing a lot of, and the person who fights back, you might like the fight in them. You might like it. Because at least you're standing up for yourself. You know, that's human. It's the ones who, none of that's true. It's not bothering me. I don't feel the need to fight back, and you just go on about your business. That's more godly and spiritual-minded. But because we're humans, you can watch, you can watch a movie and the bad guy deserves, or it, it, not really the bad guy, but just the, the person that's the real jerk in the movie, and you just, they build it up and build it up. By the end of the movie, you just want somebody to punch him. And when finally somebody does, you jump for joy. Yes, he deserved every bit of it. You know, that's our human nature. But we're not supposed to. We like to see vengeance on a person who deserves it. We like it. But the Lord tells us, don't, don't do the vengeance your own. Let me take care of it. So it's hard to do, but he'll do a better job than you can. And, we, and that's just showing your faith in him when you don't take matters into your own hands. And he is easy to reason with, willing to try to see the other person's viewpoint. He is not vindictive, but always ready to forgive those who have wronged him. Not only so, but he habitually shows kindness to others, especially to those who don't deserve it. And he is the same to all, doesn't play favorites. The rich receive the same treatment as the poor, the great are not preferred among the common people. Finally, he is not a hypocrite. He doesn't say one thing and mean another. You will never hear him flatter. He speaks the truth and never wears a mask. Really? Even in COVID times? <laughs> All right, y'all know that not what it means. All right, the worldly wise man is not so. His heart is filled with envy and strife. In his determination to enrich himself, he becomes intolerant of every rival or competitor. There is nothing noble about his behavior. It rises no higher than this earth. He lives to gratify his natural appetites, just as the animals do. And his methods are cruel, treacherous, and devilish. Beneath his well-pressed suit is a life of impurity. His thought life is polluted, his morals debased, his speech unclean. He is quarrelsome with all who disagree with him or who cross him in any way. At home, at work, in social life, he is constantly contentious. And he is harsh and overbearing, rude and crude. People cannot approach him easily. He keeps them at arm's length. 
To reason with him quietly is all but impossible. His, you ever work for anybody like that? I have. His mind is already made up, and his opinions are not subject to change. He is unforgiving. Uh, when he catches someone in a fault or error, he shows no mercy. Rather, he unleashes a torrent of abuse, discourtesy, uh, and meanness. He values people according to the benefit they might be to him. When he can no longer use them, that is, when there is no further hope of profit from knowing them, he loses interest in them. Wow. Finally, he is two-faced and insincere. You can never be sure of him, either, either of his words or actions. So just think about verse 15 and 16 together, and then verse 17 and those two descriptions of a person. That's a lot for those three little verses there. 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now, I've heard people say you can't make peace. Now, what kind of peace is this talking about? Now, if we're talking about the peace that we want in salvation, that's, we can't make that peace. Jesus made that peace. But this is talking about uh, just us dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ and really the people that we just come in contact with all the time, but especially within the church. All right, so I have not read this last part, so this is going to be new to me. All right, 318. This is the last verse of uh, 3, then we're going to be done. James closes the chapter with the words, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This verse is connecting is a connecting link between what we have been discussing and what is to follow. We have just learned that true wisdom is peace-loving. In the next chapter, we will find conflict among God's people. Here, we are reminded that life is like the farming process. We have the farmer who is the wise man who is, is a peacemaker, uh, the climate, peace, the harvest, righteousness. The farmer wants to raise a harvest of righteousness. Can this be done in an atmosphere of quarrels and bickering? No, the sowing must take place under peaceful conditions. It must be done by those who are of, of a peaceful dispos disposition. A harvest of uprightness will be produced in their own lives and in the lives of those to whom they minister. Once again, James has put our faith on trial, this time with regard to the type of wisdom we manifest in our everyday life. We must ask ourselves, do I respect the proud men of the world more than the humble believer in the Lord Jesus? Do I serve the Lord without caring who gets the credit? Or do I sometimes use questionable means in order to get good results? Am I guilty of flattery in order to influence people? Do I harbor jealousy and resentment in my heart? Do I resort to sarcasm and unkind remarks? Am I pure in thought, in speech, in morals? So for those 
for those of them that make peace, you know, we, it's, it's one of those things that we have to decide on. Be, becoming, uh, becoming born again into the family of God, there's not a whole lot we can do. We just have to believe. We believe. In everything that Jesus has done for us, we believe. And then something miraculous happens to us when we believe. But then there's this walk, this Christian life that we live. And there's a whole lot of uh, deciding how we're going to do different things every single day. We are instructed to walk after the Spirit. And that we would be a lot like that one person that that he talked about in this uh, commentary. A lot of good things. You would look a whole lot like Jesus if you was able to do that. And we're, that's what we're supposed to strive for. We're supposed to strive to be more like Jesus. We do have responsibility. Um, we don't always make the right decisions because we're human. We're still trapped in this uh, body of flesh, l- tr- trying to live a sanctified life. And having victory in that, There's more, you're going to get more success when you believe that what the Bible says about you is more true than what you see in yourself. we got to be careful not to get so caught up in trying to tame our tongue and our flesh because the Bible says it's untamable. It said it right there. We read it a little while ago. Man can tame all kinds of beasts, and sea creatures, but he can't tame the tongue. So again, don't take on more than you can handle. If the Bible says you can't do it, you can't do it under your own strength. But yet, we've been given all these examples of what we should be like. We need to make a decision to walk after the Spirit. We need to believe what the Word says you got to have a whole lot more Bible than just James to have a successful Christian walk. If, Like I said before, if all you had was James, you'd go shipwreck in this big old ship that he talked about, being controlled by that little rudder. You're going to be shipwrecked if all you had was James. I can preach nothing but James and make you think that you've got to do all these things and put all your efforts into you, and that's a lifelong process. If we're going to do the things that God has called us to do, we got to get past ourselves, and we need to look look to others who are in need. And we might have, there might be a lot of bad things about us. We need to not focus too much, especially on others, (laughs) but just keep reading the Word, keep hearing the preaching, keep praying, and simply put off those bad things. The Bible says just to put off. It's like a dirty shirt, just taking it off and tossing it to the side and putting on a clean one. The Bible makes it that simple in describing how we're to to not walk after the flesh, but to walk after the Spirit. It doesn't say work and strive and and all this, and, and it says put off.
the old man and his deeds. Just put them off. Yield. All these words, there's really no work involved. It's, it's believing. So, your salvation is believing and having success in your Christian walk. A whole lot of believing there too. But we are expected to make good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for this uh, book of James. Father, I pray that it will help us in our walk. And Father, that it will help us to be better servants for you, Father. Because, Father, we're looking out for others. We, we're not interested in ourselves we're interested in those who need to know you. And Father, we just, we're here to be trained, to be built up, and to be more able to do what you've called us to do. And Father, I pray that you would give us those opportunities and that we would know your word, that we would be confident because we're walking after the Spirit. And Father, that you will give us the right words to say when the time comes. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen.